we are thrilled to have Panacea Financial as a sponsor, providing banking built for doctors by doctors. Hear what Dr. Michael Jurgens, a MedPeds physician and co-founder of Panacea Financial, had to say about one thing that makes Panacea Financial really different. Every customer, even if you're someone with five bucks in one of our checking accounts or you have a personal loan, every single customer gets their own what we call primary care banker. So you have a singular point of contact that knows you and just text or email that same person who actually knows you. Um, as a primary care physician by trade, we base this role really off of what I do, which is trying to be a singular point of contact for my patients and coordinating their care. And it's the same thing we do um, at, at Panacea Financial. For instance, my wife called me, we need to, can we move some money over to a different account? I can get into my app. And I'm like, hey, I can't help you with this right now because I have to see patients. But both of us have a primary care banker at Panacea that she's able to email or text and they're able to help with her account issues right then and there instead of having to call a 1-800 number and wait on hold. And then all of a sudden it's an hour or two later. What's great is your primary care banker is available 24-7. And yes, it's a real human, which everyone appreciates with our busy clinical schedules. Check out Panacea Financial at coreimpodcast.com backslash panacea. We'll link it in our show notes. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. With that, let's get back into the episode. Malnutrition and hospitalized patient associated with higher costs, longer stays, and increased mortality. The economic burden of malnutrition is huge. The human cost is three times higher in hospital deaths than in those without malnutrition. And people with it have twice longer hospital stays. That's Dr. Maria Romanova, a hospitalist and the nutrition support team physician at the West Los Angeles VA Medical Center. And welcome to the Core IM Thigh Pearls podcast. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi. And I'm Dr. Hina Mehta. I'm an internist at UT Southwestern. I'm Dr. Margaret Lee, an internal medicine resident at BIDMC. And today we are talking tube feeds. You're going to hear from four discussants ranging from dietitian to gastroenterologist to hospitals who think a lot about tube feeds. Yes, so let's get started with the pearls for this episode. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains. Pearl 1. Approach to nutritional assessment in a patient. What are the indications for starting tube feeds? Pearl 2. Route of enteral access. What are the possible routes and what are the four branch points you think through when deciding which enteral axis is best for your patient? Pearl 3. Components of tube feeds. What are the differences in different types of tube feeds? Pearl 4. Tube feed complications. How do you think through your patient having diarrhea or having residuals after starting tube feeds? And is there anything you can do to improve aspiration risk? Pearl 5. As we progress patients to discharge, how do we counsel our patients for success? And which medications interact with tube feeds? You know, why don't we start with the definition of malnutrition? 
We hear it all the time, but to me, it's a somewhat nebulous concept. We diagnose malnutrition based on patients' physical findings and the history of insufficient energy intake and the weight loss. We can detect malnutrition on physical exam by seeing loss of muscle mass or subcutaneous fat or seeing the edema on the body not related to other causes, not congestive heart failure, not ascites um, of cirrhosis. Um, it can also be diagnosed by diminished functional status. So any of those six things, what I mentioned, if you take two of them and patient has two of them present, that's diagnostic of malnutrition. Okay. So two from those six gets you to malnutrition, whether it's history of insufficient intake or physical exam findings like loss of muscle mass or diminished functional status like diminished hand grip. You know, guys, sometimes I see people using labs like albumin and prealbumin as objective markers to define malnutrition. Albumin or prealbumin should not be used for diagnosis. Those are old, old criteria. I only use physical exam and history. And that's enough. The teaching point here is that albumin or prealbumin are negative acute phase reactants that decrease with inflammation. So those acute phase reactants can definitely confound the patient's nutritional state. Speaking of which, one thing that really surprised me is that prealbumin is actually transthyretin. The only reason it got called prealbumin is because it's the band on the gel electrophoresis in the position right before albumin, aka prealbumin. Oh, I didn't know that prealbumin yeah. had nothing to do with albumin. Same, right? It's fascinating how these things are named. <laughs> Anyways, so I guess, say we're worried about a patient, they have loss of fat, muscle mass, low calorie intake. When do we think about starting tube feeds then? Enteral nutrition is indicated in patients who are unable to meet their needs orally, even with oral nutrition supplements. And the timeline is 24 to 48 hours for critically ill patients and after one week in non-critically ill patients. As long as the gastrointestinal tract is safe for use, enteral nutrition should be entertained and offered to these people. And we also spoke to Cindy Huang, an inpatient dietitian in Houston, on how she thinks through initiating tube feeds. If the gut works, we use it. That's kind of our our phrase that, you know, we will describe to anybody. You know, if it works, we got to use it. And tube feeding is a way to continue to use the gut. The length of time we like to look at, at least from a dietitian standpoint, is, you know, five to seven days of oral intake. That's been less than 50% of their needs. Then looking at, are they improving or are they still going to continue to be struggling? So where do these time cutoffs for initiating two feeds actually come from? You know, the ones I say two days for ICU patients and five to seven days in non-critically ill patients. Yeah, these time cutoffs work as a general principle. What we do know is that starting early nutrition in critically ill patients can prevent things like stress ulcers and infectious complications from gut translocation. Yeah, and some of our reviewer dietitians from Northwestern said that they actually recommend starting tube feeds a bit sooner in patients who are higher risk for malnutrition or have more needs, say in people who have large non-healing wounds or are post-op or after trauma. We also talked to Dr. Brian Lee, a GI fellow at BIDMC, who had another important reason for starting tube feeds early. Ideally, we want to feed through the gut. That's kind of what the gut is designed to do. And so you want to kind of maintain that 
mucosal integrity in the gut and to use the gut as you can. And so that's kind of another reason why we try to give enteral nutrition. You know, when I tell my patients that all this time without any food in their gut causes the gut lining to break down, they're much more on board with protecting that from happening by starting two feeds sooner. Same. I actually started counseling patients on starting two feeds early and accidentally started talking about villi and definitely got into the weeds. Oh man, that sounds like a painful experience. I think we've all been there where we got too much into the weeds. Okay. So now that we have a clear sense of indications and benefits, I'm curious, are there times where we don't want to initiate tube feeds or want to delay it? If the gut is not working, we really don't want to use it. (laughs) Um, We don't want to make things worse. So if there's any type of like intestinal obstructions, right? Even if like a partial small bowel obstruction, we want to avoid tube feeding um, ileus, you know, or even hypomobility, Um, or hypermobility, right? Something that there's just like a dysfunction in the gut process. Okay. So avoid tube feeds if the gut is not working, say in ileus or obstruction, or if there are motility issues. Any other contraindications? A contraindication would be if their, I mean, goals of care does not align with aggressive nutrition support, right? Enteral nutrition, I don't recommend to initiate it on patients with very advanced dementia because there is no evidence that it prolongs life or it prevents aspiration. And those are important things for family to hear. And so I make sure that they hear it. And I do explain that uh, if if this is a situation where a patient has advanced dementia, they often do not suffer from hunger or thirst. Um, and if we try to alleviate suffering, it's not giving them... Um, nutrition that will alleviate suffering. It's given them peace and quiet, which is very hard to do in a hospital. I'm glad she brought this up. You know, these end-of-life conversations can be pretty hard and everyone has their own definition of suffering, especially when it comes to something like food. But I agree, something like NG tubes may lead to more suffering. So let's recap. Malnutrition is currently diagnosed by history and physical exam, showing any two of the following insufficient energy intake leading to weight, muscle mass, or fat loss, localized generalized fluid accumulation, and lastly, if it's contributing diminished functional status, like decreased grip strength. Yes, and then in order to maintain that mucosal integrity of the gut, we want to generally think about starting to feeds within one to two days in our ICU patients or within a week or so in our non-critically ill patients on the floors and whose trajectory we know is not improving, and even sooner in patients who are higher risk for malnutrition. And lastly, the two big picture contraindications to tube feeds are if the gut's not working or if it's not in line with their goals of care. All right, now that we have an idea of when to start tube feeds, what order do we put in the EMR for the route of the tube feeds, right? Do we do DAPOF, NG, OG, PEG, G-tube, GJ-tube, (laughs) J-tube? Oh my goodness. It's so crazy that there are so many options. I didn't know how many there were until we really had to list them here. When I'm thinking about uh, enteral access, the first branch point is how long is the patient going to need enteral access? Is it something that's going to be more durable or something that's more of a temporary um, enteral access that's just kind of uh, bridging the patient? The branch point is at about four weeks, um, typically is what we, we recommend. So if, if the patient is going to need enteral access for less than four weeks, 
usually we kind of plan for a temporary uh, access. And then if it's going to be prolonged beyond that, then we're thinking about something a little bit more durable. So we just heard about one branch point, temporary if you predict needing tube feeds for less than four weeks or permanent slash durable for more than four weeks. But there are three other important branch points to also consider. So ask yourself, one, is enteral access needed only for nutrition or also for medications? Two, is enteral access needed to decompress the stomach? And three, where should the tube terminate? Yep. Why don't we start then with those patients who we think we only need tube feeds temporarily, you know, less than four weeks or so. What are the options for each of those three branch points you just mentioned, Margaret, with medications, decompression options, as well as how far the tube can go down? The one that people see very commonly on the floors is the dop-off tube. And this can be either placed from the nose or from the mouth down the esophagus and typically into the stomach, although it can be advanced uh, post-pyloric in general under fluoroscopic guidance. Um, At other institutions, they can sometimes do that at the bedside as well. The dop-off tube is nice because it's soft, it's flexible, and it's, um, you know, in comparison to some of the other tubes, it's not as uncomfortable. But really, its main use is to administer uh, nutrition and medications as well. So you can't really use it for decompression. In contrast, sometimes, you know, people will call a nasogastric tube or like NG tube uh, to use for decompression. Usually what they're referring to is a sump type of tube. So the most common type of sump tube is a Salem sump. Um, And that's a tube, again, that can be placed from the nose or from the mouth. It's much more rigid. uh, It's less comfortable. But not only does it allow you to administer medications and uh, nutrition, uh, but it also allows you to decompress the stomach. And just to clarify, a DOP-OFF is technically a nasoenteric tube since it can go from the nose to the stomach as an NG or from the nose to the jejunum as an NJ. But it's just a bit smaller and more flexible, so it has a different name. And so to recap, a DOP-OFF can be used for medications as well as feeds, but not for decompression. Compare that to an NG tube, which is more of that rigid Salem slump. That can be used for decompression as well as meds and tube feeds. And technically, both DOP-HOFs and rigid NG tubes can be advanced post-pylorically. And just so we're on the same page, the reason why one would advance it post-pyloric with a DOP-OFF is either, say, in gastroparesis where you don't want to irritate the stomach, or maybe the patient's not tolerating feeds, which we'll get to in Pearl 4, or they have pancreatitis. But honestly, there's mixed data if this really helps or not. I would say that most of the data suggests that there's not a ton of difference between uh, gastric feeds and endogenal feeding um, in pancreatitis. That said, you know, there are some attendings um, that prefer to do NJ tubes, for instance, for post-pancreatic feeding. Um, I think it's a little bit of a stylistic thing. So now let's explore the other side of the first branch point, long-term or more durable access, which can be used for four weeks or greater. For these cases, we typically think of the PEG tube and the G-tube. Wait, Margaret, are you saying the PEG tube and the G-tube aren't the same thing? Yeah, the difference mainly lie in knowing how PEG and G-tubes are placed. And believe it or not, knowing how it's inserted helps you know who to consult, either GI or interventional radiology slash surgery. A PEG tube, uh, it stands for percutaneous endoscopic uh, gastrostomy tube. And as kind of the name implies, it's a tube that goes from the skin and it's placed with endoscopic assistance. Uh, And so what happens when a PEG tube is placed is we do an upper endoscopy and get into the stomach. And then from the skin, we kind of uh, poke through 
uh, a needle and put in essentially like a, a string. And uh, that is then pulled out through the mouth and you attach that to a long tube. And then you pull the string from the skin side and that tube then gets dragged down into the esophagus and gets pulled up against the wall of the stomach. And there's like a little bumper there that kind of keeps the tube in place so you don't just like pull it out through the skin. When we're talking about peg tubes, that peg tube is pulled down endoscopically down the esophagus and percutaneously inserted into the stomach. So I imagine if there's an esophageal tumor obstruction, you can't get the peg tube down. Yep. For those instances where we can't mechanically get from the esophagus down to the stomach, we would opt for a G-tube rather than a peg tube. In contrast, a G-tube, which is placed by IR, is done a little bit differently. They introduce uh, a needle from the skin into the stomach, and eventually what happens is they kind of anchor the stomach to the, the wall of the abdomen. They can sometimes use these kind of anchoring buttons. And then when they have a good spot, they place a, a tube in. So it sounds like they're sewing a button from the outside. <laughs> yeah, it does. I just imagine IR doing these G-tubes with their fancy tools. But really, it's like sewing. <laughs> okay, so it sounds like both PEG and G-tubes can be used for medications, nutrition, as well as decompression. All in. Check, check, check. Okay, so that's PEG tubes versus G-tubes. But then how do you think about other long-term options even lower in the GI tract, like GJ tubes and J-tubes? A GJ tube is kind of similar to a G-tube, except it has a longer extension that goes into the small bowel, again, typically placed by IR. And in that case, there'll be three ports on it. There'll be one for the balloon, one for the stomach, and then one for the juna. And then finally, the J-tube is typically placed by surgery, uh, where they will thread a tube from the skin and then surgically place it into the small bowel and kind of tack it in place. He loves saying that IR surgery places it, but I bet it's all hospital dependent. Who takes ownership of what? Right, right. I bet he spends a lot of time clarifying that. But I think I'm still wondering, you know, when are we reaching for that GJ or J tube and really want to make sure we are having access that down in the GI tract? So that's uh, usually when you're thinking about a GJ is when there's something wrong at the pylorus, at the level of the pylorus, or your, or some type of gastric outlet obstruction. Most often malignant. Typically, what's often done if there's a problem at the level of the pylorus, for instance, like a gastric outlet obstruction, is that you can take the gastric port and just put it to gravity. So you're decompressing whatever oral secretions and so forth. And so they're not vomiting. And then the J-tube is then theoretically beyond the level of obstruction. Um, and you're administering you know, nutrition and medications and so forth into the J-tube. Okay, that makes sense to use GJ tubes for severe gastroparesis. You can feed through the J, aka the jejunum, since the stomach motility is compromised. And in gastroparesis, we wouldn't want to feed through the G, aka the gastric part. And that leaves the G part of the GJ tube for decompression if needed. So let me summarize. When we're thinking about tube feeds, we have to think about, is this artificial nutrition, enteral nutrition, going to be needed for less than four weeks or so? If it is going to be needed for less than four weeks, then we can reach for a dop-offs, especially if you only need it for nutrition and medications and don't necessarily need it for decompression. You can also advance dop-offs, pass the stomach. If you do need decompression short-term, then you want to reach for that typical rigid CLM slump NG or NJ tube. If you think tube feeds are going to be needed for more than four weeks, you can ask GI to endoscopically place a peg, which gives you one to two ports for medications and tube feeds. 
but you have to make sure that GI can get from the mouth to the stomach without issues. Alternatively, IR or surgery can do a G-tube. If there is a lesion, gastroparesis, or obstruction lower down the post pylorus, then a GJ tube or a J-tube may make more sense. You know, guys, out of everything, I think the biggest black box for me is the actual tube feeds itself. The different types of tube feed formulas really feel like a foreign language to me. And honestly, I'm just hoping it's an hour in the day where nutrition is around to help me because my gosh, if it's like after 4 p.m. or the weekend, then I feel like I'm just choosing arbitrarily. Yeah, this one for my patient. Girl, I got you, Shreya. (laughs) Big picture, whatever we choose, it's better to start on the lower side, ideally starting nutritional support at 50% of the patient's estimated needs. There is a caveat though. For patients on pressors or those at risk for refeeding syndrome, we want to start tube feeds much less than 50% of their needs and increase the rate much more slowly. I find it's best to work with the nutritionist during these situations. So once we do those calculations, we have our numbers, then we will look at kind of what medical picture, right? Do they have like a fluid restriction um, where then we would have to pick formulas that are more calorie dense? Can they be on a standard formula? Do they need a specialized formula? All right. So then it sounds like we need to see if the patient's going to tolerate a quote unquote standard formula. But guys, what even is a standard formula? So a standard formula specifically contains whole intact proteins, which means the patient's digestive system needs to do the work and break down those amino acid chains. These formulas can be oral or given via a tube. Some examples are nutrient and isosource. But sometimes I see a number after the standard formulas, like nutrin 1.0 or isosource 1.2. So is 1.2 just an updated version of 1.0? A standard formula would have like 1 to 1.2 calories per milliliter. There's a little bit more dense would be 1.5. You see that number a lot in the formulas on the market, 1.5. Oh my goodness. It is so good to know that the number behind the name of the formula actually means how many calories are in a milliliter of the formula. So I guess to put into context, I like to close a loop. Let's do some quick math. If a patient is getting one liter of Nutrin 1.0, a liter is a thousand milliliters. And if there's one calorie in each milliliter, then we know our patient's getting a thousand calories. And did you know that about 70 to 85% of tube feeds is actually just water? So if a patient is fluid sensitive, then knowing if the tube feed is 1.0 versus 1.5 can make a big difference. That makes sense, right? Like if a patient needs fluid restriction, then we would want to choose a more calorie-dense tube feed for the same amount of fluid, right? So like a formula like Nutrin 1.5, if there's 1.5 calories per milliliter, then I can get away with just getting like 660 mLs of Nutrin 1.5 to get 1,000 calories. So it's always better to choose a denser formula then, right? Well, everything has its pros and cons. You see, denser formulas have higher osmolality. So hypertonic formulas like isosource 1.5 can increase the risk for osmotically induced diarrhea when compared to its less calorically dense counterparts. Hmm, that is no fun, but good to be aware of. Okay, so what are the other different types of formulas that we might see out there? The name. <laughs> um, kind of give you a little bit of an idea of the patient type of tailored towards. Most commonly, institutions will have like a low carbohydrate formula 
because that's often needed, right? Um, by patients, glucerna, um, and then diabetes source. There are also specialized formulas for patients that need low electrolytes and lower protein for renal disease. There's another option for renal disease patients, um, low electrolytes, but high protein for those that are on dialysis, right? Because for dialysis, you lose protein through that process and your protein needs are actually higher now that you are getting dialysis and your kidneys aren't worried about the high protein, right? You actually need more. One example of a low electrolyte, low protein formula in patients with CKD is Suplena. And then for patients on dialysis where you want to reach for low electrolyte but high protein formula, you might choose Nepro. That's really helpful. You know, I'm just wondering about my patients who might not be able to digest a typical standard formula and and break down those whole proteins that you were talking about, Margaret. I'm thinking about the patients who might have an abnormal digestive tract. If you have some abnormal digestion, either with the pancreas, if the patient has had a, a Whipple, Uh, then you go for like semi-elemental. That is Dr. Amelie Therian, a GI attending at BIDMC with an interest in clinical GI nutrition. She is referring to a semi-elemental formula, which consists of partially pre-digested, but not fully pre-digested peptides, polymers, and medium-chain triglycerides. An example of a common semi-elemental formula is peptamin AF, which I remember all the time because my student used to call it peptamin as F. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious. Yikes. But it's not what you think it means. AF actually just means advanced formula. Oh, okay. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Um, all right, guys. I guess now that I know what semi-elemental is, I'm guessing if a patient needs even more assistance with digestion, we will probably move from semi-elemental to just elemental formula, which I imagine is just the simplest peptides and sugars. Yep, elemental formulas require minimal digestive tract effort. If you have someone that has a very severe enteropathy that has celiac disease, autoimmune enteropathy, then you try the elemental uh, formula because what you have on top of your villi and your intestine are brush border enzymes. You need the brush border enzymes at the tip of your villi to continue the digestion, to go from the saccharide to like regular like glucose and to get from little chains of peptides to amino acids. So if you have a severe enteropathy, you're not having those enzymes and then you need to have an elemental uh, formula. Oh man, when those brush border enzymes are MIA, you have to go for an <laughs> elemental formula. Unfortunately, Vivanex is the only elemental formula we usually have, and that's super expensive. So I guess if I were to summarize what I'm taking away about choosing tube feeds, it seems like the first thing to think about is our patient's gut, right? To say, okay, is this person going to tolerate a standard formula of whole proteins that their gut needs to digest? Or does this person have some enteropathy or abnormality with their pancreas that's not producing the enzymes it needs, and they might benefit more from a semi-elemental or an elemental formula? Then we can pay attention to the number after the name of a tube feed, which stands for how many calories per milliliter is in that formula. For patients who may be fluid sensitive, we reach for more calorie-dense formulas like 1.5 instead of 1.0. All right, so after we start tube feeds, I do a little prayer that I don't get a page, that there's some complication about the tube feed, because honestly, I'm like, oh, not my area of expertise. Oh yeah, same. I'm always nervous I'm going to get a page that's like, your patient is hypoxic. And I think, crap, are they aspirating? Or, oh, your patient's having diarrhea to calls about residuals. 
Yeah, so much good ground to cover. Let's start with diving into aspiration. And I think we all know the typical teaching that we get about preventing aspiration. It's a risk when you start tube feeding. So any patient that is gastrically fed should be at an angle of minimum of 30 degrees. Um, Some places might say like 45 will depend on policy, I'm sure. And if it's on cyclic feeding or gravity feeding, having patients sit up um, for at least 30 to 45 minutes after you're done, right? Kind of letting it go past your gut, like not sitting in, in the gut or in the stomach to prevent any risk of aspiration. But is sitting up 30 to 45 degrees for 30 to 45 minutes after eating enough? We know we're aware of aspiration risk. The real problem is there is no evidence that anything we do helps. Like positioning the patient, we do it, but there is no good evidence underneath it. In reality, there is a thought that aspiration is actually caused by aspirating oral secretion and not necessarily the tube feeds, which is even harder to prevent. Oh God, I feel like the next thing you're going to tell me is that post-pyloric tube feeds don't actually help aspiration either. One of the questions that comes up often is whether feeding in the stomach versus the small bowel has an increased risk of aspiration and aspiration pneumonia. Um, And there's not a a huge amount of data, but, um, uh, you know, I would say that most of the data suggests that there's not really um, any significant benefit to post-pyloric feeding with with regards to reducing aspiration pneumonia as compared to gastric feeding. Um, With, you know, the, the thought being that typically aspiration pneumonia in these circumstances is more related to oral secretions and like oral pharyngeal aspiration, oral pharyngeal dysphagia, or, you know, difficulty with oral secretions rather than uh, with like frank vomiting from the stomach. But with that being said, I guess it is empowering to know where the real risk of aspiration really comes from, the oral secretions, and focus on ways to stay on top of that if possible. And I feel like this should be said explicitly. Even though there hasn't been a definite proven benefit yet, I'm still going to advocate raising the head of bed and staying upright after feed because that's the best practice we have. And honestly, it at least helps me sleep at night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. At least it's free. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> it is free to raise the head above the bed. Okay, why don't we move on to the next complication we might get paged about? Say you get a page that the patient is having diarrhea after two feeds starting. Most common, I think, um, just intolerance, whether that's diarrhea or some people have some nausea or like discomfort, cramping, that type of, you know, reaction. It can be hard to discern whether it's the tube feed or whether it's just introducing something into their gut when they haven't had anything in their gut for a little bit, right? Um, A lot of times, the reason why we have them have a tube is because they haven't been eating. (laughs) So even in that amount of time, your, your gut starts atrophying if you're not giving it anything, right? So it does take a little bit of time for your guts to like recover and rebuild and um, have enough to do its job. And so one big misconception that we've all had is attributing the diarrhea to the formula and unfortunately stopping the tube feeds. But that's probably not what's best for the gut. It was caused by the introduction of formula, yes, but it's probably not just the formula, right? Because for patients that, you know, have had not much in their gut for a while, the gut starts atrophying. It's going to take time for it to respond. 
Most of the time, the answer is to not stop the tube feeds, especially if the tube feeds are started at a low rate, like 10 to 20 cc's an hour. Just give the gut a little bit more time to acclimate. Whenever we encounter this, we always need to rule out other reasons for diarrhea, for example, C. diff colitis. It's not that common that enteric feeds cause diarrhea, but sometimes we need to change one formulation to another as standard tube feeds to, let's say, semi-elemental or elemental formula. Even look at that med list and discontinue bowel regimens thereon. You can also try a bulking agent like Benefiber or psyllium husk. But sure, if they continue to have a lot of intolerance, such as nausea, cramping, or diarrhea, try switching the formula. Okay, and then last but not least, residuals. I feel like when I was in residency, which is eons ago, we monitored residuals, which seems like an outdated practice now. What gastric residual volume is when nurse uses a syringe to remove gastric content, she measures the volume, and in most cases, she, she returns them into the stomach. It has been studied excessively, and it turned out that routine measurement of gastric residual volumes poorly correlates with aspiration, pneumonias, or even with gastric emptying, or even with nausea and vomiting. But what it correlates with is, is with suboptimal nutrition delivery. So it's not recommended anymore to do it routinely. What should I do when a nurse still calls about gastric residual volumes? This still happens from time to time. It's only if uh, GRV is over 500. We do recommend to hold it for an hour and then resume tube feeds and maybe check it a little later. Basically, the common practice now is not to measure it, but to monitor for patient symptoms. If you see that gastric residual volume is consistently elevated or if patient shows other signs of feeding intolerance, you can consider giving them a prokinetic agent, metoclopramide, 5 to 10 milligram, four times a day, or erythromycin, four times a day. They can be used individually or in combination. So it sounds like routine measuring of gastric residual volume is outdated, and the focus is more on symptom monitoring. If it does get checked and it's over 500 or so, we can hold it for an hour and then resume tube feeds. And as a last resort, start a prokinetic agent if needed. Yep, and then why don't we summarize our takeaways from the other common complications with tube feeds we've covered. I think the big teaching point with aspiration is that aspiration is actually caused by oral secretions rather than the tube feeds itself. And despite us doing this all the time, evidence for patient positioning to prevent aspiration has yet to show much of a benefit. With diarrhea in tube-fed patients, the diarrhea is usually not from the tube feeds itself, but actually from the gut atrophy, since these patients may not have eaten much for a long time. Next time I get this call about diarrhea, I'll try to give the gut some more time and put the tube feeds at a slower rate. Then think of all the other things that can be causing diarrhea. And lastly, if it's not getting any better, talk to the dietitian about adding a bulking agent or possibly changing up the formula. Now let's round out things with what kind of tube feed schedule we're progressing patients to, especially as they get to discharge, and what counseling and nuances we should give around medications. Most of the patients will start on continuous tube feeding in general, especially in the inpatient setting. We have that freedom to start them there, to also get them acclimated, right, and to kind of increase tolerance for it. If they're going home with tube feeds, most people will transition to... Um, bolus or gravity feeds. 
technically bolus feeding in like the in our dietetic world is really where you're using a syringe and pushing through the formula in like a bolus, like a true bolus, if that makes sense. And then gravity drip um, is technically a bolus too. So it does take longer than a bolus, but it's, it's gravity dripping. It's intermittent feeding. It's mimicking meals similar to what a bolus would be. Um, So they're a little bit different, but they're kind of similar in terms of timing and they don't have to be attached to the pump, right? Continuously for 24 hours a day. And so most people will switch over to that. But of course, we also have to test their tolerance with that, especially transitioning from um, the continuous feeding to a gravity or bolus feeding. So we're progressing patients from continuous 24-hour tube feeds to cycle feeds. And so cycle feeds is a scheduled regimen that's continuous, but usually less than 24 hours. And oftentimes we see it done at nighttime. And then from there, we progress patients either to gravity or bolus feeds. I've definitely made that mistake of saying someone is ready to go home and the RN looks at me on case management rounds and reminds me, they're still on continuous tube feeds. Oh, (laughs) yes. We've all been there, Margaret. So it sounds like gravity and bolus feed is the way to go, especially if someone's planning on going home or we just want to give them more freedom in the daytime to move around and also be done with cycled feeds too. But are there any contraindications to bolus or gravity and situations where we should stick to continuous tube feeds or cycled feeds at nighttime? Of course, like if you can't tolerate having um, a larger volume of formula in one sitting, then you will have to do it more like a continuous or cyclic feeding, kind of spreading out the volume you're getting over a course of time, right? So someone maybe with delayed gastric emptying, right? Probably not a great idea to bolus or gravity feed, or if they've had any type of changes anatomically to their gut, that might be something to consider. And maybe the biggest oversight that precludes patients from getting bolus feeds is if their tube does not terminate in the stomach. You see, our stomach is a nice reservoir to support a bolus of tube feeds. Yeah, that makes sense. We can't bolus into the jejunum, right? Jejunum isn't really a reservoir at all. It doesn't expand like the stomach. So if someone has a GJ or J tube, you'd likely want to progress them to cycled or nocturnal feeds. And then what other things should we be educating our patients on about tube feeds? Like how do we set up our patients for success when they go home? I think one thing that sometimes patients forget to do is to flush the tube after they feed. So particularly patients that are on bolus or cycled. And so there's times where patients come in, they have an endoscopically placed NJ tube, everything's great. They're discharged home and then it clogs the next day because they don't flush it and they come back and we scope them again. And so um, that's one of the key things is to like make sure they flush their tube when they're done with their feed and to flush it like immediately, not to like, oh, I, my like cycle finished a while ago. I'm going to like go around and do some other stuff and then I'm going to flush it later because then it's like too late already. Oh, I really appreciate that. I didn't know how time sensitive flushing was. Another good rule of thumb with free water flushes is to increase the flushes if it's a more concentrated formula. Oh, that makes sense. I remember Hina telling us that most of the tube feeds is 70 to 85% water and probably less right on the lower side if it's more concentrated. So that's good to know. The other thing I didn't really appreciate until we talked to our discussants is the impact of everyday medications on tube feeds. For example, something that most patients reflexively are on when they're admitted, polyethylene glycol. 
my relax is kind of like an osmolar solution that will make like the water or the liquid with it not being absorbed. So if you're giving the Marilax with two feet, then your two feeds will not be fully absorbed. And the same goes for uh, cholestyramine. And now that Dr. Therian has said that, it makes a lot of sense. Something like polyethylene glycol would impact the absorption of tube feeds. Yeah, that's good to know. Is there any other counseling we should give our patients regarding their medication timings and their tube feeds? There are only four medications where um, enteric feeding has been shown to affect absorption. And for those four medications, you need to hold tube feeds for a couple of hours before and a couple of hours after. Those four medications are phenytoin, carbamazepine, warfarin, and fluoroquinolone antibiotics. So at least for antibiotics, we can switch them to IV route if it's reasonable. One way to keep this all straight is maybe a mnemonic about the three A's. You know, one is A for anti-epileptics, phenytoin, carbamazepine, A for anticoagulation with warfarin, and A for antibiotics for fluoroquinolone. Rule of thumb is we want to hold tube feeds, usually sounds like an hour, some resources 30 minutes or so before and after giving meds. I did a lot of reading about it, and there is a small caveat for the anti-epileptics in newer guidelines and papers from 2021 saying that we really don't have to hold tube feeds from anti-epileptics, but there are still a lot of mixed practices and the interaction is real. Okay, good to know. The other thing to keep in mind about medications is to ask yourself, is that medicine extended release? I'll often get a page from pharmacy after ordering diltiazem extended release or even Paxlovid that it can't be crushed. Thankfully, some of these medications like diltiazem, you can actually switch to its immediate release form. There's also alternatives, right? You can always do like a liquid formulation, but then it's being considerate of how the liquid formulation is made. Like does it contain sorbitol, which is something that can increase the risk of diarrhea. And you're thinking, oh gosh, like, is it the two feeds? Oh no, maybe it's the sorbitol. (laughs) Um, So something to check um, as well. And dietitians should be aware of that. You know, they can look through their medications. One common example of a liquid medication that has sorbitol is actually liquid Tylenol. Oh, something we use all the time. Good to remember. All right, we've covered a ton of good ground on prepping patients for discharge and counseling. It sounds like... Summarizing, ideally, we want to transition patients to bolus or gravity feeds, but especially if they have like a J tube or a GJ tube where you're feeding into a smaller space, you can't really bolus into the small bowel. I also learned to counsel patients to flush right away after feeds to prevent ER visits for clogging. And lastly, we need to advise to hold tube feeds for at least an hour or so before and after giving the three A's the anticoagulant warfarin the antibiotic class fluoroquinolones, and oftentimes anti-epileptics like phenytoin and carbamazepine. And that is a wrap for today. If you want to learn more about tube feeds, check out our YouTube channel where we're linked to some of the original interviews. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team and colleagues and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Thank you to Dr. Varada Sakunseng Parpa for the accompanying graphic, to Doc Shpathia for the audio editing. Thank you to our reviewers, Shayna Shap, Danielle Holm, as well as Dr. Ali Tapper and Dr. Chetan Ramaprasad. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions.
The ones that say two... Oh, my God. Hold on. You're there. I think I just have all the saliva in my mouth. So inconvenient. (laughs) (laughs) Please share it with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help us find people. Or wait, wait. So, what are you looking for? (laughs) (laughs) Missing (laughs) position. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.